Well, hello there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been writing, exploring, and talking about my life uh, after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. So I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today on the show, we have a guest who is very much a kindred spirit to me. We met earlier this year, I guess late last year, at a recovery retreat and found out that we had a lot in common, including writing, reading, and raiding the kitchen after everyone else went to bed. I'm going to tell all your secrets. But here's her formal introduction. Sherry Hoppin writes, speaks, and shares her life and her story about overcoming the shame of being a Christian woman trapped in a secret life of addiction. She's the founder of She Surrenders, a ministry to help women confront and surrender the secrets that we keep. Sherry has a very unconventional story of how she got sober, and she's going to share that with us. And her goal is really to inspire others to take off their masks of shame and guilt and to embrace a life of recovery. So without any further ado, Sherry Hoppin, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hey there, Jean. You know, I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge Bubble Hour fan, as you know. Like, I stopped to get to that retreat to finally meet you because I knew we would have a great connection. So, And, yes, the kitchen rating was definitely one of the high points of the week for me because that was pretty much a sugar-free society, and um, I was a little freaked out by that. So it was good that we had that in common. Yeah, I think you and I both have leaned on sugar uh, as part of uh, one of our recovery tools, Um <laughs> Which is okay. It's better than alcohol. Yeah. It's got its own problems, exactly. but yeah. And and actually, I I really enjoyed um, the food that week at that retreat. But I also really enjoyed the night that we. I can't remember. There was like an extra pudding or something, right? It was like sweetened with honey, and we we dove in. Is that what it was? Or a cheesecake? What the heck was that? I believe it was the cheesecake. Um, actually, I think there was a little variety, and we just took care of a couple of them. I'm not sure exactly, but I will say. That was the sweetest thing we had all week, and it was phenomenal, besides the ice cream that they made. That was really, really good, too. But, yeah, the whole eating healthy thing for a week kind of went forced to. It was phenomenal. She recovers. They know how to do it. They really do. Uh, Just having someone cook for you for a week is really (laughs) quite a treat for a lot of us who are responsible for ourselves and other people's survival (laughs) food-wise. I totally agree. Totally agree. And I'll never look at guacamole the same. It, it will just never, <laughs> never quite add up to that. So, yeah, I mean. Do you remember what, what the is. number was? They gave us a number at the end of the week of how many avocados this group of, like, 24 women had eaten through the week. <laughs> it was, I don't remember the number, but it was insane. And I just thought, holy cow, that's a lot of fiber. That's a lot of fiber going around here. So it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. Okay, so hands down, we both agree that a week in Mexico to She Recovers Retreat is a delightful thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful, and it was great to meet you. So um, obviously we at, at that retreat, uh, I said you have to come on the bubble hour and tell your story because you, you did do something really neat when you got sober. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell us about yourself and about your experience, your relationship with alcohol, and how you made a change when you realized it was time to do that. Okay. Um, 
Well, I know you like to start with a little bit of history. Um, so that's what I'll do. Thinking back, it was kind of hard looking back because as much as I thought about it, I do know now why I drank and kind of when it snuck into my life as a bad habit. But really before that, I spent many years as a normal drinker, what we call normies, a term I picked up from Eugene. And it wasn't an obsession or a problem until maybe my late 30s. I'm 52 now. But before that, I would I would get really plastered once in a while. But when I really dig deep, I know that whenever I drank, I drank for the buzz because really I didn't even like the taste of alcohol. I can remember having a party shortly after we were married and standing in the kitchen and plugging my nose to get down a rum and diet and then thinking, oh, good, now I can just drink diet. So what was the point of that? And, I mean, it just kind of, when you go back and look at how you did things, you can kind of see how the path was being laid out. But um, so I got married young. In fact, the February after I graduated from high school, I was 18, and I wasn't pregnant. I mean, I was actually engaged in high school, but I waited to tell my parents until after graduation. And as you can imagine, that went over well. But now that I'm a parent, I think my husband is lucky to be alive because we would take very serious measures to make sure our daughters would never pull a stunt like that. So, um, in fact, kind of a famous story in our family is right before my dad walked me down the aisle, he, um, you know, that moment when you're on your dad's arm and he's supposed to tell you something like endearing. And my dad looks at me and says, you can still get out of this. (laughs) Well, well. No, I'm going, and down we went, and thankfully, my parents did grow to love my husband, and I always say, but by the grace of God, the stunt we pulled in February of 1985 is in its 34th year, and I have that number on a pedestal. I'm very proud of our marriage and the work we've done to get there. Thank you. Yeah, I think you've been married a similar amount of time. I think we talked about that, didn't we? Oh, I was a ripe old uh, 22 when I got married, but it was oh, to the guy that yes. I started dating at 17. So, and that worked out gotcha. for us too, but it doesn't work yes. out for everyone. Well, I, I get that. I'm not sure we make our best no. decisions in grade 12. No, 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 no. And yeah, you were 22. So I had two kids by the time I was 22, because why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but basically we had a pretty normal life. Definitely had our struggles. Biggest fight was always over money. I spent too much. I didn't think he made enough, so it wasn't a very balanced thing. But um, for the most part, we did okay. We had a lot of fun when our kids were little. And um, when I was 28, we had just moved into a new home that we worked so hard for. We built it. And I just remember feeling like it was a time when life was really, really good. I had that thought a few times because – I had a class reunion. This was a Friday night, and I'm kind of setting this up for something that happened the next day. But that Friday night at my 10-year class reunion, I just remember thinking, I've got it. I have arrived. I love my husband. We have a girl. We have a boy. We have a brand-new house. We have a camper and a freaking minivan. So, yes, I had arrived. And I just remember thinking all that so proudly and almost kind of smugly, like I did this in my own strength. But then the next morning, our world just, crashed into a million little pieces. Um, My little brother and his best friend were killed in a car accident and alcohol was involved and he was just gone. I still can't get through it without, I mean, it's been 20, 
five years and he was gone. And I've never felt pain like that in my life before. And I mean, my naughty fun little brother was gone. He was my husband's best friend and he was a favorite uncle. And um, from this, I mean, it was a form of depression, but I pretty much just became an angry bitch and I stayed there for a long time. I was so mad at God. Um, I trusted him to take care of him. My little brother was naughty, but not extremely, but just four years previous to that, my dad and my stepmom had lost her son at the same age to a car accident as well. And I just remember thinking God would never take both their sons. And I trusted that and it didn't work out that way. So I stayed there for a long time and our marriage took quite a hit. Um, I kind of just checked out from being a good mom to our two very confused children and it was probably a good year before I really started to move on and pick up the pieces. Um, in that, we got pregnant again, and we had another baby, and she brought our family so much joy, giving us kind of something to look forward to instead of looking back at. And her middle name is Grace because we say, but by the grace of God, we were doing life again. And in all that, I will say I never really went back to the cloud nine. I was on the selfish cloud nine, I call it, before Stevie was killed. But um, I look back on this gene, and I always wonder, why didn't I become an alcoholic then? It would have made sense. I mean, I would have had a good excuse, but I didn't. And, yeah, I was pregnant in there, too. And that might have prolonged my upcoming addiction. But I can honestly say it wasn't really on my radar to use alcohol to cope with the situation and I do know that a few times that I did drink that I have a memory of um, I drank to get drunk so there's that again so whenever I drank I drank hard and yeah so moving ahead life is busy we have three kids I worked part-time we had a family business but as the years went by I just honestly I felt like I was dying inside and it was just becoming harder and harder to be myself and I, I crave the old me, the person I was before the accident, even though she was rather shallow, I just felt like I was never in myself again, and I just didn't fit in my skin. And I honestly, I just didn't feel like I fit in the world. And I spent a lot of time making sure the rest of the world could see that. So on the outside, no one would ever know. And I gradually started to drink more and... I can kind of remember a few instances where I crossed the line and I think back and go, okay, that's when it kind of started to be a problem. In fact, I remember during a family party, so oh, this was probably like 1999, 2000. So um, during a family party, I ran upstairs to our bathroom just to throw back a shot from a pint of vodka I kept under the sink. And so that's not normal right there because um, we're Dutch. The liquor belongs above the refrigerator in the kitchen, not underneath the bathroom counter. So, Wait, what nationality I, can fit under the bathroom counter? What nationality is that? Oh, I don't know. I, don't, I, think, <laughs> that, I think that we are a special club, and we are our own nationality. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, subcategory. In, in 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 the world Dutch, anywhere you go, you can find the booze above the kitchen, above the refrigerator. You know, it's just like what it is. 
So, yeah, but no, mine was under, well, I had some downstairs, too, above the refrigerator, but there was also, you know, under the bathroom sink, but in a water bottle, too. You don't want the bottle to be identifiable. So I look at that and go, there was a few little things there that were not right. And um, I remember looking at myself in the mirror, catching like a glimpse out of the corner of my eye and seeing myself doing this. And I said out loud, you're going to have to fix this soon. And I asked, I said, but you can stop right now if you want to, right? And I said, right. Well, yeah, right. But it's helping me cope, so I'm going to deal with that next. And and that's actually what I said out loud. And I guess I might not have been totally sober in that moment either. But I will say the first time that I heard the expression that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful – I thought back to that moment and I'm like, oh yeah, true that, because that made all the sense in the world to me. And there's also that insanity thing. And when I heard that in AA, I'm like, well, thank God I'm not insane. But I look back on instances like that and I was, I was drinking in the bathroom from a hidden bottle when in reality, if my husband had walked in on me throwing that back, I'm pretty sure he would not have said, oop, I'm sorry, when you're done, can you come down and serve dessert? I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how it would have gone down. <laughs> and from there, there was just always a water bottle of vodka in my purse. And I just told myself so many lies to justify my drinking and just telling myself that I would stop when the time was right. And I know I was hiding how much I was drinking a lot by like 2005, just because of a couple events that stick out in my mind. And I justified it every day and I drank in secret and just never was like falling down junk. But I think of it as kind of having like a constant IV of alcohol in my system and, you know, playing the game of when my husband came home, I'd have a glass poured for both of us, but he'd think it's my first when it was probably my third. And I think I heard someone else tell that on your show team. And I was like, no way. I thought I was an original, but Again, I think that might have been me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, and oh, the other thing, I think the first thing that I heard on your show that just stopped me in my tracks was the woman said um, she had the 3 a.m. wake up call. And I'm like, wait, that happens to other people? Like you wake up full of anxiety and a cold sweat and wonder what you did or what you said. And she's describing this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's one other person that knows that this happens, you know, and now you hear it all the time. It's like kind of a thing, you know, you wake up and panic. So yeah, those things I all thought were Sherry originals. I found out I wasn't really that original after all. So, um, but things like the box of wine in the fridge, classy drinker that I was, it was emptying out so fast that I was changing the boxes out. And I remember a day earlier in life when, the box of wine would sit in the fridge and I would think, how long is this stuff good for? I should probably throw it away. And I would, because it would sit there for weeks, but over time that was not the case anymore. So I hid wine bottles and shoe boxes and I had lots of those because I like to spend money and um, empty vodka bottles hidden in my boots and until I could get rid of them. So the crazy stuff was happening. And what's even crazier is that the problem in my mind wasn't really about drinking because, of course, I was still telling myself I could quit any time. It was more about the game of when, where, how, and all the conniving and drama that goes along with that. So I would continue and not get caught. 
and I did this for quite a few years, and I was always drinking, but I actually just looked at it as kind of a need to keep life a little more interesting and a little bit more stress-free, and sometimes I would just have this thought. I'd be cleaning the house, and I would think a little booze would amp this up a little because this is boring, and house cleaning is not supposed to be fun, but for some reason I thought that I would, so then, yeah, I would clean and drink, pass out, wake up before the kids get home, and you know, start the whole process over again, the house never got clean. So it was just exhausting to keep up all of this and the lies. And I had to start drinking more, which we all know is kind of a ripple effect of this disease. I was drinking more, which was getting pretty risky. And I thought I was hiding it well, but my husband has told me that there were lots of times that he was suspicious. Sometimes he would confront me but I always had an excuse or I would flat out lie. And I think sometimes he was just exhausted by it and just didn't want to deal with it. So I, I believe I was definitely the true definition of a highly functioning alcoholic. No one would ever guess by my outward appearance that I had a constant IV of vodka in my bloodstream and could do my job. I was a football mom. I was active in church. I I worked in ministry, which is kind of the other um, thing that was created so much shame and guilt in my life. I just felt like I had a double life and I had to decide what mask to wear every day, Um, Christian wife and mother or um, raging alcoholic. And there was nothing normal about my drinking anymore. And I was having tons of blackouts and they were terrifying And so, you know, you become a detective and try to find clues about what you did or said the night before. And sometimes I could tell by my husband Craig's attitude in the morning if it had been a bad night. And a lot of times I just didn't ask. I was too scared. And I don't think he wanted to deal with it either. So um, a lot of it just, we just kept ignoring the problem, kind of almost together, but separately, if that makes sense. And I had some pretty bad episodes on a business trip flash vacation that after we got home it prompted a few friends to confront me about my drinking and that didn't go well that was really the first time someone other than my husband kind of came after me for it and I was so angry with them and I turned that around with a venom of just how dare you I was so furious with them for discussing me and I made them feel terrible about what they had done to me so Now I'm losing friends, too, but I'm believing that it's their fault, not mine. So I kind of started a search for ways to get out of this addiction. And I would plead with God to get me out of this mess so I could have a normal life and go back to drinking like a normal person. And I never said I wanted to quit for good. But I would string together two to three days of sobriety and say, see, I'm fine. And then I would cave and drink, even though for that two to three days I was obsessed with when I would drink again. And there were just so many times that I would wake up in the morning and ask God and just say, why, why do you keep saving me? There were so many times I did things that I could have hurt me or someone else. I could drink an entire fifth of vodka in a four hour span, no problem. And I did that often. And there should have been many times that I didn't wake up, but I did. And until what we call in our family, the crash and burn of Christmas, 2009, um, And I am going to read this part. I have to write it out because I cannot get through it without doing that. So just going to read this little excerpt that I wrote down about that. 
instance. So on December 26, 2009, I crashed and burned for my family to see. It was inevitable and bound to happen at some point. And it hurts me to talk about it. And when I tried to talk about it, as I prepared for this, I had to start writing because I shortened the story so much just to keep it short and tidy and quickly move on to the part where I totally redeem myself. But unfortunately, that's not how the story goes. And I had drank before a family Christmas party at my dad's house. And there I drank some more and at some point passed out, shot my mouth off and acted like the drunk that I was. I was a wife, mother, daughter, sister, or aunt in the eyes of everyone there. And while I don't remember much about that night and have never pressed for details, I know it was bad. It was humiliating, shameful, and embarrassing. But most of all, I think of my kids and the confusion and realization that this was happening. Their mother had a problem, and the shock was unfolding right in front of them. And I know that when I opened my eyes the next morning in our bed, the shame and dread I felt as if something was very, very wrong was almost unbearable. And I frantically searched in my mind to put the pieces together of what had happened the night before, and I remembered nothing. I remembered going there, and then everything's black. And it's the firmest definition of the word blackout, the worst one I've ever had. And my back was to my husband, and I could tell he wasn't sleeping, but I finally gathered the courage up to simply say, it's bad, isn't it? To which he replied, yes, and he just got up and left the room. I just felt so ashamed and exposed and broken, and I knew I couldn't just fix this one. I couldn't lie my way out of it. The pain of how I had hurt my kids and my husband was unbearable. And so the apology started and the rebuilding of relationships, and I started making false promises that I would quit. And I say false because I didn't truly believe I would quit. I knew that I couldn't. But I did think to myself, I need to get better at hiding this. So that's what I did. The lie started. I would stay sober for a few weeks, maybe string together a few months, and then scheme when, where, how was I going to drink. And I would go on a bender that would last a week or so. And then I would just be so sick physically and so tired of life mentally. I would pick myself up and start the whole process again. went to AA a few times. I did an outpatient program for a while. But none of them were really a good fit for me and I did learn a lot of valuable things at both those places but my switch was not flipped I just could not accept the forever thing and it just blew my mind um I stayed sober through some holidays some vacations and some other events but really I just craved to be alone with my battle where no one else would know and I could just drink by myself and hurt no one but me and yeah so the lies continued. I wasn't drinking in front of anyone else, so I wasn't socializing at all. Sober or not sober, I was pretty much isolating my entire life. I ended up talking to a pastor one day at the ministry that I used to work for. I'd gone into volunteer that day, and he said to me, where have you been? And I just burst into tears and sat down across from him and poured out everything. And I, that was the first time I'd done that being totally honest with someone and I have no idea why I picked him in that moment it wasn't like we were close or anything but um in that after I was done I was like pulling myself together like oh crap I've, I've got to get over this you know I've got to redeem myself so I 
said, you know, I've been sober now for five months, which in fact had been five days. And um, I thought he was going to like throw some scripture at me or say, you should talk to my friend or let's pray together. But instead he said, you need to join the ride for life. And I just looked at him and I said, are you crazy? I don't even own a bike. Give you a little background here. The ride for life is a um, fundraiser for the crisis pregnancy center I worked for. And the previous year was the first year. And um, this group of guys had ridden their bikes from from Michigan to Baltimore, I believe, and raised like $50,000. And I called them team testosterone and I thought they were crazy. And like I said, I didn't even own a bike. I was not a cyclist. I was far from an athlete at that point. And um, yeah, I was kind of an overweight back of, you know, half sobriety. So it, it wasn't pretty. And, you know, through, and oh, I'm sorry, that bike ride that year was from Michigan to Texas. And again, <laughs> now you know where I said, I know, right? I'm like, are you kidding me? But um, in, in my entire addiction, I prayed many, many things. And I was begging for help with my mess, but I never said, God, send me a bike. Please send me a bike. And <laughs> Nor would I, nor would I pray for the answer to this in the form of something like, have you seen their uniforms? It's a helmet, which covers my best feature, my hair. And then you stuff yourself into these shorts, like sausage into casing. And there you have it. There's your new biking uniform. So that wasn't going to be my choice either. So anyway, um, when my husband came home from a business trip a few days later and I stayed sober that whole time because I promised him that I would. And I said, Hey, you're not going to believe what this guy wants me to do. And he said, you're doing it. And I was like, Craig, you were supposed to be my out. And he said, well, I can't be because you told me you were going to pray for something physically, mentally, and emotionally to get you through this. And he says, I think that answers all three things, especially the physical. I was like, are you kidding Next day he came home from work and we went to the bike shop and we bought a bike and I just, it was the most surreal experience I've ever had. It was kind of like I was just watching this all from above unfold and um, lo and behold, I went for a bike ride that night and was thrilled because I went like five miles and the next day I went 10 miles and um, I started to get hooked. And so 51 days after the challenge to go on this trip was issued, I left on that bike ride from Michigan to Texas. And um, that summer, with all the training, that 51 days, I drank a lot less because it's really hard to get up and go train with your group when you're hungover. So um, it was it was good. But I didn't go into this bike ride for the right reasons, which should have been to raise funds and awareness for a great cause, which I did do. But I had this feeling that my reasons were selfish because I wanted to save me from myself. And as an added bonus, I was sure to lose weight and that didn't happen. But um, so that whole summer I kind of appeared confident and it was good. But after the training was done and it was time to leave for the trip, it was about three days before we left that I just let this gripping fear take over. And I'm sure it was a lot of anxiety about, can I really do this? And instead of, you know, talking to someone about it and praying about it, I began binge drinking. And I did that for three days before we left. And on the 
morning that the ride for life 2010 left, I had the worst hangover of my life. I was dehydrated. I was shaking and I wanted to throw up and nobody knew, I, including my husband. I stood there in that parking lot and looked around and thought nobody else feels like this. I'm such an idiot. Nobody would ever understand. But unbelievably, though, I made it through that day and everyone after that. It was about 14 days total, but which is unreal because I basically was detoxing while riding a bike almost 300 miles those first few days. So on the trip, everybody else is starting to feel worse as their bodies get wore down. I'm starting to feel better. So um, I'm kind of getting high on this biking thing and how good I was feeling. And I remember by like day six, just thinking, I just want to do this forever. And so I made a vow never to drink on that drink again when I got home and you got a lot of time to think when you're on a bike that long, like 10 hours a day. So, and sometimes you can't ride next to somebody and pass the time with conversation because you have to ride single file and certain places and things like that. Or there's these killer hills that I'll never forget and dog chases. Those were a few of my nightmares from that trip, but <laughs> oh, that's a whole, that's in the book, man, because that was awful. But um, I had some PTSD from that, I think, but on that trip, I just, I just feel like I just kind of came alive and I laughed a lot and I made friends who knew nothing about my drinking problem. And, you know, one of my close friends on that trip, um, my roommate, she said to me, I'm just, and she knows, she knew my history, not about the three days before we left, but she knew most of it. And she said, I'm just seeing the old Sherry come back and I'm just loving her. And that meant so much to me that she said this. And I wrote in my journal on that trip, um, something that really sticks in my mind. And it was, I have this visual of riding with that group on that first trip and pieces of this mask I've been wearing for so long are flying off as I ride. Like the scene in Forrest Gump when he starts to run and his braces fly off and, you know, they're all yelling, <laughs> run Forrest, run. But mine was ride, Sherry, ride, you know? And I just felt like I was just leaving it all behind. And um, it was a Christian group. I, I kind of feel like I, um, reconnected with God and my trust in him on this trip because there was no way I was doing this in my own strength. Um, there's no way that anybody starts after a three-day bender and gets on a bike for 300 miles. That had to be a God thing. But I came home um, very confident and with kind of a big head about my accomplishment and um, kind of wanted to stay on that glow for a while. I was a my husband says a legend in my own mind. <laughs> I just totally kind of forgot how God was the one who got me through those hard days on that trip. And then the high wore off and that little voice kicked in and told me that I just wasn't enough. Like, who do you think you are? You're still a rotten alcoholic. So I listened and less than a week after the whole process started over again, my life was again revolving around my next drink. And I was drinking alone again and isolating myself from everybody. And quite honestly, that was life for the next few years. I would have long, angry stretches of sobriety, and then I'd binge, and then I had six months, or I had nine months, and on time, almost a year. And I did go on two more of those bike trips, where I'd train all summer, eat healthy, and feel alive, and I did leave for those two without a hangover, thank God. And I would just start to find some real freedom from alcohol during the summer, and then on those trips, I would feel real and authentic authentic and I think this is amazing like you can have the pee my pants kind of laughter without alcohol and 
I was so thankful for those times because they did give me a lot of hope. And um, the last time I drank was shortly after my third bike trip. It was in the fall of 2013, and my entire family was going to be out of town for different reasons, and I was going to be alone. So I chose to spend that weekend drinking, pass out, repeat. And that last time that I drank all alone on that weekend, I got scared. I got really scared. I was alone. I drank a lot, and I knew I was in trouble. Um, I just remember, you know, my heart was pounding, and I, I felt like I was going to die. And whether I was or not, or if it was just, you know, the panic, I don't know. But I texted two of my friends pretty much out of fear and probably liquid courage. And one of them was the, one of the friends that I had hurt so badly when she had come to me years earlier and said, you know, I think you got a problem. And I just cut her out of my life. But she showed up that day and um, they fed me, they stayed with me, they held me while I cried and I was shaking and, I mean, climbed in bed with me and made sure I was going to be okay because really the amount of alcohol I drank probably should have killed me, but it didn't. And when my husband came home the next day, I told him what had happened, and he put his hat in his hands. And just, I've never seen him look so defeated. He just said, no more. And if you drink again, I have two choices for you. And I was listening this time because usually I just blew off anything anybody said and figured I'll fix it later or I'll figure out my own way to handle it. But he told me that my first choice if I drank again was that I would go to rehab without any ifs, hands, or buts, and I would stay for as long as I needed to be there. If I refused to go to rehab, he was going to leave me. And he'd never threatened that before. I just always thought he was going to take care of me. And he said, I can't do this anymore, and I'm not going to lie for you anymore. I'm not going to cover you with the kids. I know they all think you've been sober for quite a few years, but it's time to be honest. So I agreed, but I was so broken. I had no faith in myself, and I just wanted someone to take care of me, to make it go away, but that that doesn't happen, and um, I cried for days, but I didn't drink, and for every minute I stayed sober, I could really feel God speaking to me, and constantly in my mind I heard, we've got this, and sometimes I would hear my husband saying that to me, and sometimes it was God. I know I just never felt alone in getting sober this time like I had before when I constantly would say, I got this. I quit trying everything else, meetings, support groups, therapy, nothing. This time it was just me and God. And um, a friend had recommended to me, um, Rick Warren's What on Earth Am I Here For? And I picked it up and I just kind of poured myself into it. It's a 40-day plan of reading and journaling, but it took me the full probably 90 to 100 days to get through it. I could only handle a page at a time because it's just very effective to me and really made me look inward. And my husband was there when I needed him. He put up with tears and mood swings and pity parties. And I tell him now that was actually menopause training. And um, he's very <laughs> lucky to have some prerequisite as to what this is really going to be like. He did just mention that recently, but... Um, he's a good guy. He even, I know, right? He even got a bike to ride with me when I didn't want to go ride alone. And I do love it when he goes with me because then it usually involves ice cream. It's not like a, you know, all out ride. And 
he just really did whatever he could. And what I couldn't talk to him about or if he wasn't there, I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And my words were just pouring out from my heart and my mind. And I just stayed quiet from the rest of the world for quite a few months. And I avoided anything that would cause any drama in my life and in my mind, which was just about anything from social events to taking a different route on the way home. So I went past a liquor store I'd been a regular at. And I would say that the first 90 days that I quit drinking for the last time, I was in isolation. And I know a lot of people would say that isn't healthy or the right thing to do. But for me, it was working. And um, I know that not everybody can do that. But I, I quit my job the previous year, and I was alone. And I just spent time on me. And I was writing, I was exercising, I was trying to eat healthy, plus the sugar, <laughs> reading. Um, I Marie kondo the crap out of my house, even though it wasn't <laughs> called that then, but that's what I was doing. And my entire day was just focused on whatever I had to do to stay sober. And um, it was always easier in the morning and kind of the want would amp up as the day went on, but I just learned to put other things in place to take place of happy hour and, um, Anything from noon on was a challenge for a while. But on the plus side, my husband and I, we spent a lot of quiet times together, and he's a saint, and I'm not exaggerating. He's been hurt so much. I lied to him, and I had so much fear and shame, and so did he, but just for different reasons. And it was all caused by my addiction. So we worked on our friendship, and over time it got better, and Craig became my ally instead of my enemy. And I feel like we've got a second chance um, at life because at the time that this all happened, our last child it was in her senior year of high school and about to go off to college, and we were going to be empty nesters. And I can't stand to think about what our life would have looked like had I kept drinking now being totally alone. But instead, by the time she left for college, we knew how to be alone and we knew how to enjoy each other's company and to do things together. And, yeah, that was over five years ago. So November 6, 2013 is my date that I hold on a pedestal, and I am so proud of that date. But um, I will say I live life pretty transparent now. I'm not afraid to share my faith or my story. But if you would have told me that I'd be speaking and writing publicly about my addiction, the, the thing that I had spent so much time and effort to hide, I would not have believed you. And um, when I used to listen to the Bible Hour, I'd think, well, that's great, but wow, I can't believe they're talking about it. And I was, I mean, I didn't even like to go to public meetings. I liked internet recovery where I could remain faceless and nobody would know. But in doing that, it has just set me free in more ways than I could have ever imagined. In fact, the first time that I spoke about it was about two years into sobriety and in our very small community um, where I know a lot of people, I would have rather probably spoken in California to 10,000 people than in that church in front of 200 women. Um, it was just mind boggling to me. And, but Hey, it all worked out. And um, it kind of got me going on my writing journey for, for years I wanted to write. And I would work on creating a story, and it just wouldn't work. And, and then I'm like, oh, duh, God gave you a really good one. You should tell it. So that's um, 
led to a lot of other doors opening in my life, mostly recovery related, but, um, you know, I spoke to you about some other things I'm doing with writing and, um, I just have all these communities all over and I just, yeah, I'm just so appreciative of the doors that have been opened because of my addiction. So now today you can find me, um, busy, still wife. Um, we have a family business, um, mom, our kids are all grown up, but thank goodness they still need me. And we have three wonderful little grandsons who are the love of my life. And I am so grateful that I got sober before they came along because I can remember sitting in one of the few AA meetings, um, that I went to and this lady next to me was just sobbing and I kept thinking, wonder what her problem is. Well, when it was her turn to talk, she said that her children had said, you can no longer watch the grandchildren because of your drinking. And I was still drinking actively then. And I don't even think we had any kids married then. So we were far from grandchildren, but I remember thinking, well, thank God that's never going to happen to me. But honestly, it could have. Um, it easily could have. So I'm, I'm so grateful for the timing in this too. And it makes me sad that we had to go through that or that I had to go through it. And another thing I heard, heard in AA was that this guy would always end with, and today I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. And I would think to myself immediately, you're such a liar. Um, how on earth could you be grateful for this? But I am, and I don't like to think who I'd be without it. I mean, I think I would have just continued on this selfish trajectory in life and about things and status and all that kind of stuff my life is nothing like that anymore it's just kind of authentic and real and here I am so yeah I'm just doing the best I can every day trying to do the next right thing that's kind of my mantra for this year so pretty much all of it Jean (laughs) well that's a lot and I have two pages of questions so No, that's that's what it's all about is telling your story. And what I'm curious about, you know, you you identify losing your brother and I'm very sorry about that. That is so tragic. Um you identify that as you, the one of the core traumas. I mean, that was definitely um a turning point or a a hurdle emotionally for you. But is that what it all comes back to or is there sort of a what was underneath that like what it, what did you learn about yourself that you kind of had to take apart and rebuild in order to do this life thing without alcohol you know like i said drinking did not become how i coped when my brother was killed but i do remember like i said just feeling so empty and like i wasn't enough and i think that's where the drinking started was because I was so insecure and my self-esteem was so low and I just felt like drinking gave me liquid courage all the time to do life. Whereas if I would have maybe, maybe gotten the help I needed, you know, after he was killed, I just think too that a lot of it is the control thing. And I thought I had life completely under control. And when that realization was just so taken from me, I think it just rocked me to my core and so part of in quitting drinking I tried to quit drinking all those times but I never unwrapped the layers of you know why don't you think you're enough and in that time when I finally did quit for the last time I was ready to find out who I was and um, that's what I spent so much work on and um, I would say that that was probably 
the biggest game changer was realizing that I've got to learn how to do life without alcohol because that's not who I am. Did you feel like you had to compensate for his loss, that you had to sort of expand to fill the void that his death created? Was that what you meant by not being enough? Part of, I mean, my parents would never, ever back up this statement. They love, I have an older sister, and, and they love us both dearly. But my little brother was the baby of the family, and he was special. He was he was really, really loved by all of us. And I felt like, you know, total middle child thing. well, I bet they wished it was me. I mean, you can be 28 when you say that or 8 years old when you say that, but the feeling is the same. And I felt I do I did feel some of that, and you know I've explored a little bit of that in you know therapy, and I don't feel like I stayed there, but I do feel like almost like people have to make sure I have to be able to show people that I'm strong and that we're going to get through this, and you know it's not going to define us, you know, and all that stuff, and and part of that comes with the whole Christianity thing. I needed to make sure that people saw that I was trusting in God and I was believing that he was going to get us through this and, you know, onward Christian soldiers. And, you know, I wasn't, I totally wasn't able to do any of that. And it was just, honestly, it was just the most confusing time of my life because I just felt like everything that I knew to be sure um, was gone. And you just, when something like that happens, it makes you look at everything in life and go, well, I thought that was a sure thing, but it's probably not, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know. Am I making sense? I don't know. You are. You're, <laughs> you're not I mean, like honestly, ticking all the boxes, but it's a swirling thing, right? I mean, it's like such a big, yeah. such a big emotional pool. That It was. And I don't think that you're in, when something tragic like that happens, I don't believe I don't think we're equipped to handle that kind of thing so instantly, but yet the way that I rolled, it was going to be handled quickly, instantly, and efficiently. And mm-hmm. um, I couldn't do it. And I've never been told I couldn't do something. And like I said to the control thing was really, really hard. And I just felt like from then on, and it may not have been the reason, but I just feel like things started crumbling from that point on, almost like I'd kind of given up on, um, doing this in my own power, you know, or using my faith to get me through. I just slowly started drinking. And, you know, I also had this imagery of what the perfect family looked like. Um, My parents are divorced. And so I kind of went into marriage with a, um, we're going to have the perfect marriage. Um, We're going to have a girl, boy in a minivan and everything's going to be perfect. Well, starts out, you know, um, a brother's killed and then you get teenagers who talk back and you know or get in trouble or you know other things happen and you feel like there's like this darkness in your over your family and I really can't think of anything specific other than the fact that the teenagers are really hard and it wasn't going to be that way my kids were you know gonna come home from school and sit and have milk and cookies and tell me about their day and if someone bullied them or if I needed to go talk to a teacher right after they pulled out their straight a report cards and all of that was, you know, it wasn't happening. We were doing life like real people. And I just don't think that I felt like everything was just crumbling. And little by little, I just kind of gave up and started doing it my own way, which was to drink. I have to say, 
it's ironic, right, that regardless of what religion a person is, the heart of religion is really about compassion and and caring for others and looking out for each other and forgiveness. And and so we know better than to think that um, – than to have that shame and feel like an imposter and feel like we, I suspect if someone else had come to you and though I'm a terrible person, blah, 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 you would have been able to use your knowledge of, of your faith to talk them out of that and to explain to them why that wasn't true. And yet in your twisted thinking, you were a special case because for you it really was true, and I'm using I special my true. whole life. That's part of the problem. I think I'm special my whole life, you know. So yeah. honestly, I went into. I mean, it's so funny that you say that because that was my way of dealing with things. I remember being in this is in this this ties in. So stay with me here. Lamaze class for my first child. You know, Lamaze where you went and learned how to have a baby or whatever and how to work together and breathe and all that stuff. And there was yeah. a thing on back labor, how you were supposed to breathe and how you were supposed to position yourself. And I'm like, I can't do that because I really couldn't. It was like curve your back this weird way or whatever. And my husband's like, you have to know how to do that. And I go, no, it's not going to happen to me. And that's how I deal. It's just not going to happen to me. Well, of course I had back labor, but, <laughs> you know, things like that. I mean, I'm like, seriously, but things like that. Like I just would not, if I didn't want to deal with them, I just put them away. And that's a dangerous track to be on because when stuff like that does hit, I mean, I, just like I said about my, my dad and my stepmother losing her son, um, my stepbrother, that's not going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to my brother. Well, it did. So I just kind of lost all faith in anything that I thought to be um, a for sure thing. So, you know, yeah. I, I, we all have heard the, um, the cliches or the sayings that are like, so common in AA, even those of us that don't go to AA, like you hear those sayings and you remember them because they ring so true, even though they're kind of annoying, but they're really true. Things like, because I hear you talk about denial, flat out denial. I'm not going to have back labor. I'm special. I don't need that. I don't want that. So I'm not going to do that. And the um, egomaniac with the inferiority complex and just the idea of being like special. I know that's normal for other people, but I'm different. I'm especially bad. I'm also especially good at the same time. <laughs> all of those, mm-hmm. all of those things that are, they ring, they, they, those things uh, have longevity because they're true for so many of us. And yet mm-hmm. we feel yeah. like such individuals at that time. So here's one, here's my question for you regarding that, because when your friends confronted you, um, you were angry and you pushed them away. Um, and what I wonder is, what did you need to hear at that time? Did did they do something wrong or were you just not ready? And also, what would you say if you saw someone struggling the way you were and also feeling that shame and that um, that burden of being an imposter? And um, what what did you learn? What's the right thing to do in that situation? Well, I do know I reacted the wrong way because these, these three women were, or four, they were, they really cared for me. They really cared about me. I mean, these were friends that we had done stuff with for years. Um, one of them, the one that came and, you know, took care of me on my last uh, bender was, we have a picture of us in first grade on the front steps of our school. 
And I was willing to throw that all away just to protect my alcohol. So um, the biggest thing that I was so angry about that I made it about, and part of me is like, I think I just chose to fixate on this so I wouldn't have to look at what they were really saying, but they had talked about me. So we were a core group of four of us and three of them, you know, I'm on the outside, which was always an insecure thing when you find out you're on the outside or something, you know, Um, the three of them talked about me. And then the bravest one came and talked to me on their behalf. And would it have gone any better if we all sat down? Probably not. But I felt attacked. And um, I also felt like, what do you want me to do? Um, We all drink together too. So what? Everybody's going to stop drinking? I mean, there just wasn't a lot of um, rationale behind the whole conversation. Like, they didn't offer a solution. They didn't offer, um, you know, they just were concerned about my drinking. And I didn't have a solution either other than cut, cut you out of my life because if you're going to rain on my parade, I don't want you there. And my parade right now involves a lot of alcohol. So, you know, over time those relationships healed, and I would say um, that um, I'm close to them again. Um, at least two of them I am. But in the other one, just because we kind of just went our separate ways. But what would have been the right thing to do was what I do when um, I have to go to someone or someone asks me to talk to someone. I never just, you know, I always say that person has to be ready to talk about it. Or um, it might have been good if I could have talked to somebody who said, I know how you feel, because that's really the only person that we want to relate to in those moments in life is someone that knows what we're going through, but maybe to offer, you know, just love and support, you know, like we love you. We want to love you through this. Um, What can we do to help, you know? And I'm sure that they said some of those things, but I think that really we were all just as stumped as to what to do as Mm -hmm. anybody. I mean, this was, this was foreign ground to all of us, you know, and, I think it was also the panic that this was for all four of us again, that this was changing what our friendship was going to look like, especially if I quit drinking, what does that look like? You know, so there's a lot of fear in both the people that can drink normally. And you know, the one that can't, and it all works. It all works out. I will say that to anybody who quits drinking, your friendships will be deeper and stronger. You know, you're going to find out who your real friends are and you really won't care that much about the ones that don't come along for the ride. But the way that I would have said for them to do it differently was just be to offer love and support and just say, we're concerned, you know, um, and we're going to love you through it. Where I used to work um, for the crisis pregnancy center, our you know mission statement was loving people through life's most important decisions. And that's kind of what I go to when I end up talking to somebody, you know, about their drinking problem I have a lot of women that reach out to me through my blog and yeah, it's easier to do an email, but I don't give them an outline as to what you should do next. I pretty much just give them an ear and, you know, I feel like that's the best thing. And as you become more sober curious, I feel like avenues more and more open up as to what you can do to get that help. But as far as, I mean, intervention type stuff like that, that's, that's really scary ground because if the person isn't ready to receive it, it's just going to be nasty. I, 
it's so hard because it was a really loving thing for them to do. And like you say, we're all kind of bumbling through at that point. And the fact is, I mean, I know you now in Sparty. I didn't know you then. You are lovely. I suspect <laughs> you might have not been quite so darling in your worst moment. And, and my point being that like active alcoholics and addicts can be really hard to love. And mm-hmm. so to have people that love you enough to still be loving and caring rather than just like stop calling you because you're not fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, that That's really a gift. And so I, I, I guess I will, I want that message to reach the ears of anyone who might be listening who's in that position of having been confronted with people and you're feeling really hurt and angry. I get that because that mm-hmm. is the worst feeling to feel like people have been talking about you. And yet, oh, you know, yeah. if you were standing on your head in a mini skirt, you know, in the hotel water fountain, maybe they were talking about you for a reason. So uh, there could be, there yeah. could be a little bit of that on you. And but to know that that there's there is love underneath it and not only that but when you're in active addiction the addictive part of your brain is going to leverage the bad feelings to keep you stuck and it's going mm-hmm. to even though that the love might be just as big as the discomfort the pain the betrayal the anger whatever your addicted brain is going to I believe, focus on that negativity and make it bigger and ignore the love part because it can use that to keep you drinking because your brain is in survival mode and you've taught it that you need to drink to survive, right? That's a big thing to overcome. That's a really hard thing to overcome. I have to also say that the image of you like in bed with your friends looking after you just almost made me cry. It's so lovely and you're so fortunate to have friends like that. Oh, for sure, for sure. In fact, I was supposed to see two of them tonight, and it was canceled because of this weather. But I cherish my friends, you know, and these are my girlfriends from high school, actually. And, you know, we've been out of high school since 1984, so that's a long time. And we still get together once a month. We celebrate each other's birthdays. We celebrate each other's, you know, victories. We cry with each other. And I value I valued those friendships my whole life. But, you know, these girls are still going to have a drink, glass of wine when we go out. And there was, you know, about a year of transition where sometimes I didn't go or sometimes I left um, so angry with them for being, I guess, for drinking in front of me. But really it was because they could drink and I couldn't, you know. So, um, yeah. you know, but thank God we stuck it out because, honestly, I was so mean, but I was terrified they were going to take away my pacifier, basically. You know, they were going to. They were going to try and steal the one thing that I could count on, and I thought that was alcohol. And um, I look at that now as what they did. It's an extreme act of courage and love, you know. Um, yeah, I I am grateful for them, and I'm grateful for a lot of other friends. I mean, I don't have – in AA, too, one of the things that terrified me is that, you know, someone said to me, you're going to have to make all new friends. And I'm like, um, no, I can't because these I love these girls. And I have a lot of different circles of friends now, but the ones that I don't see that much anymore, we're still okay. We can pick up right where we left off, but we're just not picking up a drink to do it. And um, I think that people sometimes can be more accepting of me the way I am now because what they see is what they get and they don't. um, I think I was, could be catty. I could have kind of a mean mouth when I was drinking 
And um, I think that they trust me a little more now. In fact, I know they trust me a lot more. But um, I am who I am, and I'm not afraid to, to wear it, whereas before I spent so much time hiding it. So I feel like my friendships now are so authentic, and they're just amazing. And I could pick up the phone and call just about any of them, and they would be here to help me in a heartbeat, and they know I would do that for them. And we've been through some hard stuff. You know, our parents are getting older and kids are, you know, grown up and we've, we've been through some hard stuff together, but I would say that so far one of the hardest has been my addiction um, in our group and it hasn't changed who we are. In fact, I think it's made us stronger together and um, yeah. So friendship is a beautiful thing and you've, you've just got to hang on to them. The ones that are important at least, and the ones that are willing to work with you and stand by you that, what your life has to change and, you know, are they willing to go along for the ride? And thank God these girls were. We're out of time, but I, before I let you go, I want you to talk about the projects that you're involved in, the things you're working on and um, anything you want to share. Oh, okay. Well, I, when I started writing, I went to a writer's conference here in Michigan and fell in love with it. And, um, because that's what I do. I jumped all in, and by the third year, I found myself as executive director of this writer's conference. So this is my second year going into this. It's um, the Maranatha Christian Writers Conference on the beautiful shores of Lake Michigan, if I could do a little promo piece here. Um, It's an amazing (laughs) conference. It is amazing. And um, I think you're going to put some of the information, the contact information for that on the website. And yeah. I would encourage you, if, if you are a writer and you want to know more, this is the place to go. You will be get so much information and be educated in it, and um, you'll be hooked. So it's very inspiring as well. And I'm also right now serving on a board for Journey of Hope Yoga, which is my good friend Bonnie's ministry, who you met on the retreat as well. And, she's lovely. Um, isn't she? She, she I, is. She's my, she's my sweet friend. You know, she really, really is. And she um, wants me to do yoga so bad, but I'm just not doing it like I should. So anyway, so I'm on this yoga board for recovery, even though I don't do yoga. But um, so that's been um, a really cool part of recovery, reaching out to different women in, in that regard. In fact, Bonnie and I are hosting our first retreat next weekend. And, um, of course, she's teaching yoga. I'm not. And I'm speaking because I'm better with words and flexibility any day. And um, it's, it's sold out, and that was just really exciting for us. So we're starting small, but, hey, we'll see where it goes. And, um, yeah, the other thing I'm doing is um, I love to talk to different women about recovery. I love to talk to anybody. Um, I'm speaking at a college next week and at a young mom's group. So I feel like um, part of my audience is getting younger, and I, I just – I look forward to that. So yeah, I love to speak. Um, I'm writing a book about my, um, like you said, very unconventional way of getting sober and much more detailed than what I gave you. I will mention the dogs in the book. And um, so, yeah, I have an agent now, which is really exciting that I got at the conference last year that I met up with. And that's um, been so helpful. And let's see what else. Oh, I'm um, also writing material for um, starting a women's recovery group in my area. Um, Kind of, um, you don't have to be a Christian to be in it, but I feel like 
Christian women take on a lot of extra shame and a lot of extra hiding. At least that's what I did. So I want a safe place for women that don't dare go to, you know, a random meeting or, you know, anything like that to, um, to go and just be with a few other women. So um, I'm writing some material for that based on the fruits of the spirit. So that's just another project I have going. And yeah, besides, like I think I told you, we're building a house and planning a wedding. So yeah, lots of hats, lots of accessorizing. So um, pretty much what I'm doing right now. So can listeners find pretty much everything I'm guessing they can link to via your blog, which is shesurrenders.com. And um, on the episode notes, I'll have links for the other things that you mentioned as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. If anybody wants I more information, to just contact me through the blog. Yeah, okay. We'll do. And also, listeners, you can you can reach Sherry through her blog, shesurrenders.com, or you can email me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that Sherry gets your messages. And, um, yeah, I've loved talking to you, and I, I love your humor and your joy and your feisty, and you're still a little sassy. And uh, <laughs> I've really right enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, um, even we hit it off, Dean. I like that sassy part too. So yeah, yeah. Good. No, I've really thank you for letting me tell my story and share it with others. And you keep doing what you're doing because you're one of the first voices I heard in recovery. So um, I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. It's really um, an important part of my life. And every once in a while, I get to check in with myself and I say, you know, you can't do this forever. And you have to let yourself know when it's time to stop, but it's not time to stop yet. So I'm just going to keep doing mm-hmm. it. Uh, it's really no a, no a lovely thing to be part of. And um, uh, there's definitely no shortage of stories to be told. So it's, no, that not. yeah, it's an important thing. Um, we're out of time, so I have to let you go, but it's great talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Sherry Hoppin, who, I will point out her maiden name is Hop, so she's Sherry Hop Hoppin, <laughs> and I wish you had hyphenated that. Um, I, I'm but, going to. Yeah, I think you should. I think you should. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Dean. <laughs> thanks for being here. Uh, and that's it for us. So from Sherry and I, everyone, I hope you have a great week. Until next time. I didn't, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It's just safe and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be
Just want to 